all naked and oiled up, three guys are circling each other on the sands just below our pilgrims standing on the dike as the river rushes toward its gigantic waterfall. Be more dramatic? I just don't really think so. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. We are in the 16th canto of Inferno. I warned you we're going to go slowly through this canto because I think it is just a corker all the way down. If you need to catch up, go back and check out the last episode of this podcast. You'll at least know where we are in canto 16 of Inferno. <laughs> If you just drop it in here, you really might want to go back to the beginning of this walk all, what, 90 episodes ago and start walking with us from the beginning. Either way, we're at lines 28 through 45 of Canto 16 of Inferno. Here we go. And one of them began, If the sheer horror of this vital spot and our hairless, singed faces put us in our petitions in your disdain, then let our fame move your soul to tell us who you are, one on living feet, walking without a care in the world down here in Inferno. That one in whose prints I make my way, though he goes along naked and skinned raw, was of such a high station that you wouldn't believe it. He was the grandson of good Guadrata. His name is Guido Warfare. And in his life, he did much with reasoning and much with the sword. And this other one, crunching the sand behind me, is Teguiao Aldobrandi, whose voice should have found a better welcome in the world. And I who have been stationed on the cross with them, was Jacopo Rustacucci, and for sure, my bestial wife brought me more harm than anything else. There they are, the three of them, all together. I have two things to say about this passage. First, about its introduction, and then about the three figures circling each other, and then three things to say about the passage as a whole. So let's start with the opening of the passage itself. You recall again that our pilgrim and his guide Virgil are up on a little dike or embankment. A river is rushing along below them to their other side. Our burning sands stretching out with firefall-like snowflakes on these centers were amongst the sodomites, or so at least I claim. And here they start, these three naked, oiled, circling each other in their tracks. And one of them starts, if the sheer horror of this vile spot on our hairless, singed faces, I my God. These guys have been burned alive. They don't even have any hair left on their bodies. If all of that put us and our petitions in your disdain, wow, interesting, then let our fame move your soul to tell us who you are, one on living feet walking without a care in the world down here in Inferno. Remember Virgil said these are worthy of a great deal of courtesy of the prime medieval civic virtue, courtesy of knowing your place, of offering obeisance to those above you, of offering a helping hand to those below you, and also making sure those below you don't get out of line, but still offering a helping hand, the very 
essence of courtesy, of always making sure that you know who you are. And here this guy starts in. If the sheer horror of this vile spot in our hairless faces put us in our petitions in your disdain, wow. So he's being so courteous, so overly polite that he's saying, hey, you know, we're kind of famous people, but we put ourselves at your service. We put ourselves below you, given our horrible condition. And if that's the case, that we're below you, then just trust our fame. Ah, Fama, the link back to Brunetto, the link back to follow your star. And you can't you can't avoid getting into a glorious port, as Brunetto says. Notice Brunetto's worry about the fame and remembering his books and how to build fame in the world. You see, this is linking back because there is more than one way to get fame in the world. One is to write something that will be remembered. Another way is to make political moves or to create political alliances that may get you remembered. Think about Yalta. Think about Appomattox Courthouse to make political moves that may make your name be remembered. Brunetto's was all about what he wrote. This is a different kind of fame, but it's still the same idea. We're still amongst people who are worried that their fame won't outlast their death. So, this figure says, let our fame move your soul to tell us who you are. One on living feet. Notice they, again, just like Brunetto, they have no problem identifying the pilgrim as living. They know he's living. They're, they're not necessarily shocked by it like Brunetto was not shocked by it. They just seem to take it in stride, but they're like, well, wait a minute, how come you're here on living feet? And it's really important to hear that. Remember when I told you they started their old verses? Remember that they started chanting around their old verses? Well, here's another poetic reference to feet, to poetic feet running underneath all of this politics that we're about to descend to. There's a whole question about how to put it into poetry. And while they're on their dead feet, our pilgrim is on living feet writing this poem. And then this phrase, walking without a care in the world down here in Inferno. I translated that a little loosely, but what he's saying is you're, you're just, here you are, just coming along in Inferno. Notice that he names the place Inferno. It's there in the Florentine. Inferno, so named here in a canto that will ultimately name the poem Comedy. Curious, right? So much naming. Why? What does naming do? It sets things in place. It sets things in categories. It creates the thing itself. As you name it, it creates its limits. It creates its foundations. Now let's move on to who they are. In the commentary, as I told you last time, these are often called the three noble Florentines, the three noble Florentine leaders, maybe really what they are, are Guelph heroes. They're Guelph heroes from the late 1200s who have come up to our pilgrim, all from Florence. Yes, that's true, but it's important to remember what political party they were in. In Canto 10, we met the Ghibelline leader, Farinata, rising up 
in the heretic among the heretics out of his tomb. Here we're going to meet Guelphs, and these Guelphs are important to Florentine history. It's a little hard for us to see it today because these figures are, well, rather lost to history. They would be even more lost were it not for Dante's poem, but they're rather lost to history, but still nonetheless, it's important to see them because they would be on Dante's mind. So this figure who is talking, and later we find out it's Jacopo Rustacucci. So I'm just going to go ahead and say who it is. Rustacucci starts out, the one in whose prints I make my way. Notice again, I made a big deal about this last time, walking in each other's footprints. The one of prints I, in the, whose prints I make my way, though he goes naked and skinned raw, was of such a high station you wouldn't believe it. He was the grandson of good Gualdrada. This is his grandmother, Gualdrada. She was a noble person, very much influential in founding a noble line that went back several centuries, founding that line inside of Florence. And the guy himself, that's his grandmother, the guy himself is, well, I translated it as Guido Warfare. It's Guido Guerra, but it's just a word for war in Florentine. So his nickname is Guido Warfare, Guido Guerra. But it's important to see that because this is a warlord. This is an important Guelph warlord. It says in his life, Rustacucci, well, I should say Rustacucci says in his life, he did much with reasoning, sensa. It's not just reasoning. It's much with his mind, his mental faculties. He worked things out. He did much with his senses, but not like his five senses, taste, touch, smell, etc. But senses as in common sense is too mundane a way to translate it but think about it as 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 senses as in you kind of use all of your mental faculties to make things happen i translated that shorthand reasoning he didn't much with reasoning and much with the sword guido guerra guido warfare is a notable gulf warlord in fact he was one of the ones who led the gulfs back from their defeat at the battle of monteperti remember at the battle of monteperti in 1260 the gulfs are defeated by the ghibellines they're crushed in fact at monteperti by the ghibellines and then guido warfare here is one of the guys who rounds up the Guelphs, reinvigorates them, and in fact, they crushed the Ghibellines at Benevetto in 1266. In 1266, when the Guelphs crushed the Ghibellines, this is when they kill Frederick II's son, Manfred. This guy, Guido Warfare, or Guido Guerra, the grandson of Guadrada, he is an exemplar of white gals. Anybody in Dante's day would know who he is and be dumbfounded by his very presence. Here he is, this very exemplar, heroic figure who helped the Guelphs crush the Ghibellines at Benevetto and come back into power. That's the first guy. The second guy, this other one, Pustacucci says, crunching the sand behind me, walking in my footsteps, is Teguiao Aldobrandi, whose voice should have found a better welcome in this world. Teguiao is part of the Ademari family in Florence, and he is known for one thing in particular. He tried to talk the Guelphs out of going to battle at the Battle of Monteperti, the disastrous battle in which the Guelphs were destroyed, at least temporarily, by the Ghibellines. And Teguiao Aldobrandi put in a word to say, hey, 
don't do this. Let's not go into this battle with the CNEs and with all these forces arrayed against us. We're going to get destroyed. It's important to note Tegiao Aldebrandi here as the voice that tried to stop a war because A, think about Ferranata back in Canto 10. Remember, he's the good Ghibelline who, when the Ghibelline forces wanted to raise Florence and even salt it to the ground, stopped them and stood up and said, no, don't burn Florence to the ground. Keep it. I'm going to say something, and this is going to relate ahead to the canto, so you just have to keep this in your mind right now. You know who else said don't go to war? Lacawan. Remember, if you do, you're Homer. <laughs> If you remember your battle for Troy, remember Laocoon and how Laocoon tried to stop the battle from happening and said, ah, he gave the famous line, don't trust Greeks bearing gifts about that wooden horse. I don't even trust them, he said. And he threw his spear at the wooden horse and it resounded as it hit, but then it turned into snakes and the snakes came down and it basically ate Laocoon and his children, um, ate them alive. But he had tried to say to the Trojans, don't accept this wooden horse. Don't go to battle so quickly. That's important because Laocoon, the reference here, another figure who tried to stop a war, because at the end of this canto, we're going to meet something with switching snake-like tails. Laocoon and the desire to avoid warfare is running like a little stream under the surface of this canto and surfaces right here with Tegiao Aldobrandi. And then we come to the last figure. And I, who have been stationed on the cross with them, was Jacopo Rustacucci. Rustacucci owned the house right next door to Tegiao in Florence. He was known for writing various peace treaties with Florence. And again, someone who did not necessarily want to go to war, especially as a writer of peace treaties. Someone who tried to stop conflicts from happening. That's Jacopo Rustacucci. You'll notice that he says, I have been stationed on the cross with them. There are three of them. This is a blasphemous inversion of Christ and the two thieves. Three on a cross, or three on three crosses. And by making this reference to the cross and these three circling around and around each other, we have an infernal, blasphemous notion of Christ on the cross. And who is Christ on the cross? He's the king of peace in Christian tradition. And what is it that these three hope for? peace, whether it is getting back at the Ghibellines and finally reestablishing Gelfarul in Florence, whether it is like Tegiao saying, hey, don't, don't go to war so fast, you're going to be destroyed, which they were, or Rustacucci himself, a famous treaty writer. These are people who tried to, in, to create peace. Were they successful? No. That's why it's an infernal version of Christ on the cross between two thieves. Here's three crucified, as it were, who don't bring any peace. So let's talk more about this passage as a whole. Rustacucci, who basically says all the lines in this passage, is a great orator. 
We should notice how good he is with rhetoric. He starts out by garnering his listener's sympathy. You know, oh, we're so burned up. And maybe that puts us at your disdain. But, you know, uh, just let our fame, <laughs> let our fame kind of persuade you to tell us who you are. And you notice that he's flattering toward the pilgrim. But you'll also notice that he says, tell us who you are. Does he stop and wait? No. Like most of the damned, he's only really interested in himself. Does he, does he get that question answered? No. Just like Brunetto Latini, who says, who is this who's guiding you? This Virgil back here. Who is this who's guiding you? Does he get that question answered? No, because he blows on with what he wants to say. It is just absolutely genetic of the damned to not really care. But it looks like you care. You know, it's like when you go to a party and somebody says, how you doing? And you say, well, this week was, and then they launch into some big story about themselves because they don't really care about how you're doing. That's like Rustacucci here. But he attempts to garner his listeners' sympathy. He introduces his companions in a very favorable light. He did much with reasoning this Guido warfare and much with his sword. Ortegiaio, he should have found a better voice, a better welcome in the world. I mean, you know, he did give it to me, you know. And at the end, he excuses his, his faults. So he gives everybody a really good gloss, a really good introduction. He's like a great Toastmaster. And at the end, well, my sin and, you know, um, it's my, the fault of my bestial wife. Let's stop there and talk about that. Rustacucci, the good orator, the fine speaker, the good toastmaster, ends with this very cryptic line. My bestial wife brought me more harm than anything else. Now, let me tell you what we're about, what I'm about to say is not meant for kids. If there are kids listening, maybe you should just hold right now and come back to this later. You'll notice when Rustacucci opens this passage, he opens with a good woman, good guadrada. Early on in the commentary, Gualdrara, Guido Warfare's grandmother, developed all kinds of legends around her. There's not a lot of information about her, but the commentary started to develop all kinds of le legends, and they all had to do, as you would know with medieval legends, with her chastity, that she protected her chastity. None of this is necessarily true, but the legends start to develop inside the commentary about why Gualdrara is so good. Our point here is that the introduction of these three opens with a good woman and then ends with Rustacucci's wife. It says, my bestial wife brought me more harm than anything else. What does that mean? Well, for a long time, it was thought that perhaps his wife drove him to being gay, to put it in modern words, that something about her, maybe she was shrewish. That's the way it's often translated. Oh, these are terrible misogynistic words. I'm really sorry. But this is what the commentary seems to set upon, is that, you know, she was just somebody who just nagged him day and night. And eventually he's like, oh, God, who cares? I'm gay. Like, I can't deal with this anymore. It seems so dumb. I can't even believe it. I prefer a more modern interpretation of this. The word is bestial wife or beast-like woman brought me more harm than anything else. And I think the more modern translation or understanding of this is that his wife liked, for lack of a better word, and I don't want, again, to become too graphic, his wife liked unnatural sexual practices. In other words, he's here 
on the sands with the sodomites because he practiced sodomy with his wife because he's blaming it on her, basically. She asked for it, and so we did it. And here I am, damned for it. That seems like a more logical explanation. And you should know that in modern commentary, it's often thought that if you accept that these are the sodomites on the sands, that Canto 15 are the homosexuals, that is Brunetto Latini and the people that he points out at the end, the grammarians and et cetera, that he points out at the end. And then that these three here are heterosexuals who practiced unnatural sexual acts. And we're being told that by the way Rustacucci blames it on his wife and unnatural sexual acts. That could be the case. And it seems nice and neat and logical. More, however, I think is interesting is that he's blaming his damnation on someone else. And you know, if you know if you know anything about comedy, you should know that damnation is your own fault. Didn't you learn that with Francesca? It's you can't you can't pawn this off on a book you read. You can't pawn this off on the sweet guy you met on that who just happens to be your brother-in-law. You, you you can't do that. You're responsible for your own damnation. You did this to yourself. So. What happens here? His rhetoric devolves down to a point where he takes no blame. If, in fact, rhetoric is the way that you bring people together in politics to make them seek the common good, then there are also ways you can use rhetoric to excuse yourself, to claim it's not your fault, to present everything in the best possible light. These three are here they're in hell. If they're so noble and they're so fabulous, what are they doing in hell? Well, that's the last point. Tegiaio and Rustucci have already come up. Do you remember back in Canto 6, lines 79 and 80, Dante asked Chaco, the piggish glutton, where certain people are, and he lists them off. Where's Ferranata? And it, we talked about it as kind of an ubisunt. Where have these people gone off to? They're all the dead. Where's Ferranata? And then he says, where's Tagliaio? Here he is. Where's Rustacucci? Here he is. And then he names off a guy, Harry Arrigo, which who we never meet. And he names a fifth guy who we haven't yet met, but we will meet on down in hell. Here's two of the people that come up with Chaco. And Dante says, where are they? I mean, these are the people that kind of were noble and had great ideas and great political ideas. Where are these people now? And Chaco doesn't offer any quibble. Chaco says they're among the blacker souls on down in hell. Well, how so? How are these the blacker souls? They sound like great guys trying to stop war, trying to write peace treaties, trying to establish peace in Florence. They seem like such great guys. How, how are they here then? What you should know is, A, none of these is a known homosexual or a sodomite, just as we encountered in Canto 15. So again, there could be a quibble here all about the use of rhetoric, as we talked about in a previous episode of this podcast. But for Dante to put them here, he has besmirched them eternally. You realize this is like putting Washington and Jefferson somewhere. I don't know. Let's, let's say Washington, Jefferson, and Adams, since I'm a U.S. citizen, I'm going to use U.S. founding fathers somewhere, and calling them all sodomites. And saying, huh, those three sodomites, a lot of good they did. 
You realize that if I said that, if I told you Washington and Jefferson and Adams were sodomites, it would be explosive. Well, listen, I'm a gay man. It wouldn't be that explosive to me. But okay, you know that in the larger cultural landscape, that would be explosive. To take these guys, Rustacucci, Tegiaio, Guido Warfare, just stick them here and call them this is forever damning them. It is locking them in this place. And we should think about it. Why are they here? Here's my best guess. They are here because they trusted rhetoric. They trusted this ability to do just this that Jacopo Rustacucci does, to use rhetoric to get what you want, to flatter your listener, to offer the best possible answers, to excuse yourself. All of that, in the end, does not bring about the political good. You know it doesn't. You know that all the highfalutin talk in the world, all the beautiful patriotic talk about what it is to be an American or an American exceptionalism or what it is to be Irish or what it is to be Indian or what it is to be German, all the highfalutin talk in the world of nationalistic import and beautiful social solidarity, in the end, it rings empty because he does not bring people together. Not because people are more selfish than that, but because rhetoric itself wears thin. How thin? Well, we're going to have to wait for the rest of this canto to see just how thin it wears, patting yourself on the back and saying, aren't we great, we're the Danes, or aren't we great, we're the Irish, or aren't we great, we're the French, or aren't we great, we're US citizens. In the end, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Why? Because the world is fractured, because the world is going over a cliff in a waterfall, and there is no way rhetoric can save you. So subscribe, like this podcast, stay with me. We got to stick with these guys out on the sand because they are difficult, oily, <laughs> naked. I don't know what that has to do with anything, but oily as can be slippery. Ooh, they're slippery. You know, they're really good Florentines. Dante said that back with Jaco. Where are these good Florentines? Oh, they're among the blacker souls. Here they are. Why are they here? Hmm. Because in the end, they tried to do that which was, in the end, unnatural. Not just their sexual acts, but their political rhetoric. More up real soon. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.